In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week week that I'll talk about uh, next week, probably on Friday's show because of the Christmas holiday, is Complicit by Max H. Bazerman. Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop. And so this is a fairly new release. I think it came out in the recent weeks or months. And of course, we all think we're against bad behavior, but as the title and subtitle suggest we are in some way complicit in letting unethical behavior go or pretend like it's not there or at least we don't do enough so uh, i was interested to read that looking forward to it and we'll share it with you next week the book of the week from last week that i'll talk about tonight is the art of possibility by rosamund stone zander and benjamin zander the art of possibility transforming professional and personal life my brother Parham had recommended me this book and um, just looked at it briefly. Usually take his book recommendations seriously. So I bought it without knowing too much about the author's husband and wife. The husband is a musician and also a conductor of orchestras. And uh, Rosamund, his wife, is a therapist. This book came out, I think, about 20 years ago, around two, year 2000, actually 22 years ago. And I didn't realize when I got the book that Benjamin Zander has a a TED talk that I really like, and um, I highly recommend it. But he's very animated and passionate about uh, talking about music and connecting it to so many things related to life. So I recommend that TED talk. But I was reading the book and halfway through, based on things and stories he shared, um, it just sounded like that guy. So I looked it up and saw that it was in fact him. I didn't know it till about halfway through. And so as the title suggests, The Art of Possibility, the theme of the book is realizing that often in life and the ways we look at life and what we do in our lives, we can get stuck in certain ways of being and seeing and not recognize that there is more things possible or that we are not looking at the possibilities that might exist. Then, And this book has a series of what they call the practices, each one a chapter that's focused around a theme and a practice and, and sometimes often a, a type of a rule um, or guiding value that they then get into. So for example, um, it begins with it's all invented. So yeah, a reminder that so much of life that we think has to be the way it is, it really is invented. Things don't have to be this way. And so that itself is related to this uh, realm of looking at the art of possibility that we see things being a certain way. And there's even a chapter called the way things are, uh, but do they have to be that way or can we see it some other way? 
uh, there was a, a chapter, an interesting called Giving an A. And uh, this came from, I think, the title itself from Benjamin in one of his classes starting doing this practice where early in the class, in the first day of class, essentially, he would have all of the students in one of his classes write a letter that was dated the next May and basically writing how they earned A in this class. So it's written in the present tense as if they write it in May. So I earned A in this class because I did this, this, and this. And also it's a way of looking at people giving them an A rather than looking at them with a judgmental or critical eye, looking at them with this eye of possibility and about what they're doing right or what's good about them. A title I re- uh, a chapter I really enjoyed was Being a Contribution. And so this chapter focused on how when we look at ourselves or what we do in life, focusing on the contribution that we give rather than measuring it in other ways. For example, was I the best? Am I good enough? Am I doing better than other people? Am I solving a problem? Something I've talked about a lot in general, but especially in relation to, for example, what's happening in Iran and trying to support the people of Iran. Sometimes we can think, is it going to make a change? Is is it enough? And really, I think this mindset of being a contribution, or I talk about focusing on your own responsibility, is the better mindset to keep us focused and motivated and able to um, sustain our efforts in supporting the people of Iran. But also this this title and this chapter being a contribution um, related to the ways I talk about success that rather than focusing on what you get, how much money and fame you get, I often say we should look at it the other way around, that success should be measured by how much you give. And so I actually like this term contribution as being another way of, of putting that phrase of what are you contributing to the world and focusing on that. Um, the, the chapter begins with this story of a woman, a man approaches a woman and sees that she's throwing these starfish into the water, trying to save them. And the man says, well, can't you see that there's too many? You're not going to be able to throw them all in, that it won't make a difference. And she says, well, I think it makes a difference to this one, the one she's holding and then throws in. And I think that's a, you know, illustrates a few important aspects of human nature. One is the man's perspective that, well, we look at things in such perfectionistic ways and all good, all bad, black and white, that either you fix the problem where you failed, or you fix the problem where it's not worth doing, rather than realizing you might not fix the whole problem or all the people suffering in a certain way, but if you make a positive contribution, if you make someone's life better, it matters to that person, and in that way it does matter. That's all that matters. It would make sense to say if we could feed all the hungry people but one, we shouldn't do that. Of course, we want to feed that last one too, but it would make sense to not do that. But sometimes with our perfectionistic thinking and our looking at things as all good or all bad, or did I do it right, we don't even contribute as much as we can. And related to being a a contribution, when we have that mindset and realize that we each have this unique gift to contribute, unique in that we're all unique individuals, yes, it's cliche to say that no two people are alike, but it is true. And even when we think of the gifts we have, not only are there gifts we can share with the world, but they're gifts that have been given to us. They don't quite belong to us. So someone who has a beautiful voice since music is Benjamin Zander's 
um, area of expertise and where he does most of his work. Someone has a beautiful voice. Yes, we can say in a way it's their voice, literally, that they're the ones singing, but they share it with the world and it's no longer theirs. Or even before that, they could consider it not theirs. It's something to share with others. We can get so fixated on getting the attention or who gets the attention and credit and wanting to then appear humble because we don't want to appear that we want the attention, that unfortunately, almost all of us are, are holding back some of the gifts that we can and should, and, and, and I think it's our responsibility to give to the world. If you can share, let's say, some art, you can get fixated on, well, I don't want it to seem like I want attention, or what if it doesn't do well, or it fails, or what if it's not that good, or what if it is good, and now I have to do that, or... Lots of things can come up for us that are related to some result or related to what's going to happen next, um, or, or maybe not wanting to look a certain way, but really what we end up doing is depriving the world of something we have to offer. And that might relate actually to uh, chapter six, which is called rule number six, which is kind of a um, tongue-in-cheek because it's kind of like a joke that comes from this story that, that someone ends up saying, uh, they keep using rule number six to calm people down. And eventually someone asks, well, what's rule number six? And he says it basically is don't take yourself so seriously with some semi-profane. Uh, GD is the word that's used. Um, basically not taking ourselves so seriously. And that can be a good thing to keep in mind in general, but also related to what I was just saying. So if you sing and if you're good or you're not, it doesn't mean you are such a big deal or you should take yourself so seriously. But if you have something to contribute... I think we should do it and not get so bogged down into who I am and how it's going to make me look. Um, it's something to share with other people. And there's other chapters related to things like one is called being the board, which is rather than seeing yourself as just a piece on the board, imagine you're the whole board, not again, like rule number six, to take yourself so seriously, but to recognize that we can look at how we're responsible in some way for the things that happen to us rather than being passive bystanders. So even they use this example, which can in some ways feel extreme that you're at a red light and someone slams into you that's intoxicated from behind. And so it's not to say you are responsible that they hit you or that you should have gotten out of the way. That's That would be too much. and doesn't make sense to put that blame or responsibility on you, but that you can accept that every time we drive, we do take on the risk that something can happen to us. It's just statistically possible and one of the possible things that can happen. So we accept that, not that it exonerates the person who is driving intoxicated or that it makes it okay or good, or we would want it to happen, but that it is something we have to accept if we're looking at ourselves as being the board. And so I did um, enjoy a lot of this book. I, I will share, I don't often get into the experience I have of, of reading a book. Sometimes I do. That I did enjoy it, I felt it was interesting, but reading it and getting more into it, I did feel myself, I guess, disconnecting a bit from it, and I tried to look at that a bit. Why was I not connecting as much to the book? And I think what I felt, which, you know, this is, of course, my interpretation, is that it, was, it at times presented things in a way that made it seem that everything is simple even though they said at times explicitly that things are not simple and they're not easy. But sometimes in books like this that might talk about, okay, here's some principles or some things we've tried, and then they share stories. And in the stories, it's all it almost seems like the things work perfectly. If you do this technique, 
It's going to work perfectly. And I don't think that was their intention. And maybe that's not even how things were presented. But I think that was something I felt in myself, some disconnection. Um, and, and there's some things that made it seem that, for example, the way things are, I thought it was actually a good concept that, one, sometimes things are the way they are and we can't change them. For example, I think, I forgot who it was. They said, maybe it was one of their fathers said something like, there's no bad weather, just bad clothing in a way that you just might not be prepared for that weather, but the weather itself is not good and bad. Or that the way things are shouldn't be taken as some kind of um, statement that things have to always be that way just because they were that way. So that we can look at the way things are in two ways. One is we sometimes have to accept them, the things the way they are, and look at that and see how we can deal with that rather than trying to resist the reality of what is. But also that we shouldn't take things so seriously that because things were a certain way, they have to be, or there's some ultimate wisdom that should never be challenged. We can challenge it and, and rightfully should and not just assume that it has to be right that way. But in that chapter, I felt this sense that I've, I've, I see in some courses or even sometimes some people in trying to, you know, self-help types of mindsets that can make it seem like nothing is good, nothing is bad, everything can be almost thought away, that if something seems bad to you, just look at it differently, now it's good. And I find, on one hand, there's a lot of value in that, in the sense that so much of what we experience, so much of what we we experience, really, we always have a filter. There is no just objectivity, that I just see things exactly as they are in some kind of objective reality. I always have lenses, even with perception, and they talk about uh, vision at, at some point in the book, but even when it comes to what we see uh, visually is affected by things we've experienced, the ways the brain works that aren't necessarily about just what is out there. So I think this is a very powerful concept to be mindful that things aren't good and bad uh, oftentimes, and we make those interpretations, but it can almost get to this conclusion that nothing is good or bad. And that's something that I, I take big exception with. And I think what I'll do is in the next section, get into that a little bit more deeply, because I've seen this theme come up in many types of self-help courses, books that I think can be problematic. But coming back to this book, I, I did enjoy it overall. As I mentioned, I had this experience of disconnecting a bit from it as I got closer to the end that I tried to reflect on a bit, even joking with myself that maybe um, I was stuck in some ways and didn't want to see the possible, the art of, the, of possibility in some ways, which is obviously true that I am sure I am locked in in ways that I don't even realize. But I, I was trying to see what else might be there. So, uh, you know, I do try to reflect as I read the books, have a conversation, so to speak, with the authors as I'm reading. What do I agree with, disagree with? What am I thinking about? What am I learning? What might make me feel the ways I'm even feeling as I read the book? Because sometimes that can be giving me some insights. Overall, I did enjoy the book. Um, all things considered and some of the concepts of looking at things in a different way. I do think we uh, get stuck in ways of being and seeing that we don't even recognize. And so sometimes we need to be shaken up to realize the limitations that we're putting on ourselves, on our relationships, and how we see the world. So that book is The Art of Possibility by Rosamund Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander. 
Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I was discussing the book, The Art of Possibility by Rosamund Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander, I mentioned how I did experience a sense of things coming off as too easy in some ways or always working out as long as you apply certain principles. And also this theme that often comes up in in self-help, it's also just a human tendency of trying to see everything as not good or bad or really in a way saying that nothing is bad I think is more what um, people end up trying to do so that we don't need to be sad because I think this is a common experience you have probably done it yourself hundreds of times and you see others do it as well someone says they're feeling down or you're feeling down about something yourself and there's this pull towards saying maybe it's okay maybe you don't need to be upset about that and sometimes that's true it does have some value but it also can lead to this way of thinking and this mindset that everything is always okay or it's you never need to be down about anything even you know in the book they talk about when things go wrong and or something happens we think of as a mistake or not good and and saying how fascinating and actually i think that could be a good practice so as i said i think there's value in this awareness that we have lenses and filters and biases and make us see things in certain ways that don't have to be that way that we see something as good or bad but it doesn't have to be the case that it's good or bad or if we become aware of our own interpretations we see that we can see it a different way and i think that can be very valuable but what i get concerned about is when we take this to the logical extreme which starts to happen that nothing is is good or bad and what i think what i also experienced reading the book is um, some of the language they used was similar to things like what I've seen in, I think it's Landmark Forum and classes like that. I think they even thank the people, so I think there's some influence because they use words like distinction, um, which comes up a lot in Landmark. I haven't completed Landmark myself. I've done a similar course many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and I've met many people that have, and for many people it has had a positive impact, and I recognize that. Uh, some of the aspects of the teachings I might have more concerns about or disagreements with, which I'll briefly touch on, not specifically talking about landmark, but some of these themes that might come up. And so that might have been another experience I had reading the book that made me feel less connected to it was, I think I have some biases, maybe I have to be aware of the art of possibility, that makes me not like when I see some of those themes come up. So let me actually share an experience I remember having in one of these types of courses 15 years ago. It was in Landmark, something similar. And I remember the teacher, instructor, leader, I forgot what it was called, was was sharing something and someone said something like someone's mother died. And they were saying, well, why does it have to be good or bad? And so I, I can get this way of thinking of being aware of how we assume something has to be bad and then we can make it bad. But I have issue with then saying everything is equal or nothing is bad. Because the way this came to my mind was, okay, so this person says my mother died or someone's mother died. Is that good or bad? It's like, no, it doesn't have to, why does it have to be bad? And then I thought, okay, well, let's imagine that person's mother hasn't died yet. And we're having this class. And now the person's mother is here and she's choking. Do we save her or not? If we go to this logical extreme, it might seem silly, but just to, to make the point, illustrate the point that 
her being dead is not bad, then why would we save her? Why should I try to save the choking person if we're saying that her being dead is not bad? It's just as good as her being alive or we don't have to see it as a bad thing. Well, then why should we do anything? Why should we intervene? Where, of course, we would look like crazy people, like psychopaths, if we allowed someone to just die right in front of us and do nothing, but saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It's equal. Of course, everyone would instinctively, which doesn't mean it's right, but I think in this case, very clearly it is, save that person and do everything we could to save her, which shows that we don't think it's equal. We do have some values, some basic values that we recognize as being defining of our experience, our existence, or of life, or what we do, don't do, and how we think things should be. And one of them that's a pretty clear one is that life is better than death. Saving a life is better than letting a life die. Um, suffering is bad, not suffering good. Of course, I always make the distinction, if we're talking about pain, if it's leading to growth, that could be a good, that is a good thing. But we're talking about unnecessary suffering. That's bad. So if we can avoid it, make it go away, we should do it. And so we all have values that we live by, whether we are explicitly aware of them or not, that's a different thing. We all have reactions to what happens that make us do things or not do certain things or prefer things or think that things should be a certain way. And I actually think it's very important for us to be mindful to make those values conscious because this is where there's the good in this teaching is that we might have these assumptions of good and bad that are coming from a certain place that we don't even realize that maybe we wouldn't even agree with if we thought about it, but we've just learned that this is a bad thing. Oh, no, no, you shouldn't do this, or it's so wrong to do that. So, for example, as an Iranian, we have certain cultural values that we have, and some of them we might recognize I don't want to have anymore. That, for example, let's say Tarof, where we are um, abundantly polite and deferential. So even if you want something, you say you don't want it. Or if you don't want to offer something, you still have to say you're offering it. And so someone might say, well, I feel like that's not being genuine for me. I can recognize where it's coming from, and I want to challenge that. But if you don't, you will instinctually, based on what you've experienced, if you've lived in the Iranian culture, feel that that's the right thing to do, and it'll feel right, and going against it will feel wrong. But so going back to this, everything is as good as everything else or nothing is bad, I have a, a big issue with that because I think then people take that to people's lives. Well, if you're upset, you don't need to be upset. If something hurts you, you don't need to be sad about it. It's okay. It could be, you know, we come up with so many reasons. Well, things could be worse. Oh, you know, this person has a worse experience than you or, well, imagine um, if this was your life or, okay, you're upset about your husband or wife. Well, imagine the, this person's husband or wife who's so much worse. And sometimes those things give us some perspective that can have value, but it doesn't eliminate our pain or make what we're going through good because of that, because there's something worse out there. Um, you know, if you stub your toe and you start yelling, I can't be like, well, you know, there's someone who is experiencing worse pain than you. So you have to shut up. You can't be in pain or express your pain. You have to be happy that that's the pain you have where people have it worse. Yes, that could be some perspective you have later on, but when you're experiencing that intense pain, the pain doesn't feel good, and that's that's real. That's very informative of what you are going through. So for me, this um, I think I have a reaction to this because I have seen so many times people 
take these types of lines of reasoning to then justify looking at things in a certain way that could even become unhealthy. Because if you take this type of thinking, well, everything is as good as everything else, then even doing something wrong, you're considering being unfaithful. Well, it's, maybe it's as good as not. We can teach them something or they'll be happy or they'll learn something or it'll make our marriage better if I do this in some way. We can justify taking any type of action ourselves. And we also justify or we try to eliminate other people's feelings. So I have this maybe acute awareness at times, maybe it's too strong at times, or almost an allergic reaction to seeing people um, making arguments that try to eliminate people's pain or eliminate that feeling. And if we try to understand it the way I understand where this comes from, which I think is a very understandable type of feeling, is that when something feels bad, we want to resolve it. That's even how our bad feelings are informative or helpful is that it creates something. If we look at, for example, in Mark Solm's book, The Hidden Spring, that homeostasis, which takes us away from homeostasis. So you feel okay, all of a sudden you don't feel good. And you're going to try to resolve that discrepancy, that not feeling good. So if, let's say you're thirsty. I actually have a cup of water in front of me here. I'm thirsty. I have this not good feeling. It doesn't feel good. And I qualitatively, qualitatively can be aware that that's a thirst not feeling good. And then so I go towards the cup, I drink it as I'm drinking it, my that feeling goes away, that bad feeling, and it gets resolved. This would be like a relief. Not everyone is going to have that sensation, but I feel a relief and a nice satisfied feeling, and I have restored that type of homeostasis of that bad feeling. The bad feeling goes away. So when we have a bad feeling, we try to make it go away. And sometimes there's ways that are easier, like, yes, I'm thirsty, have a drink, you're cold, get under a blanket or turn on a heater or do something that warms you up and you feel that negative feeling go away. But then sometimes I, we have a feeling that's like, I'm upset about something. And so let's say you're upset with your boss and you can't just make it disappear, the, the problem, whether it's the boss itself or some interaction of it, it's not going to be with that person. You can't just necessarily make it disappear. So what people will often do is go to the quick solution because it doesn't feel good of, well, maybe you can just say there's nothing to be sad about. And so, yes, there's times where this reframing and this perspective taking can be very good. And you realize, you know what, the thing I'm upset about is not so bad. Or actually, now that I understand it, this is a recreation of my experience with my parents. So maybe there's some reason why I find myself in this pattern. So I do appreciate taking a stance of curiosity. And I'm not in any way saying, yes, when you're feeling sad, it's so bad. It's the worst thing. You should feel really bad and only stay in that bad and sad feeling. That's the good way of dealing with it. I, I actually think it's very important to look at it as information. What is this bad feeling telling me? So we have to resist the urge to quickly get rid of it and make it disappear, which is what I see people doing often and what these types of thinking to me sometimes can lead to. That, oh no, maybe it's not bad. Oh, you know, you're lucky. Some people don't even have a job. Well, that that's true, but it doesn't mean that if your boss is treating you poorly, you should just accept it or that that's something you ignore. You still look at that information. Yes, I'm grateful I have a job. But in this moment, I felt that my boss treated me unfair, unfairly, and I want to understand that more. And you might get a lot of perspective from that if you actually look at that as information rather than how do I make this disappear. And so when I look at a 
good life or leaving, living the best life we can, I recognize that it often involves tolerating painful or uncomfortable feelings. That to me is actually the only way to live a good life. And the only way to have a good relationship is to also do that. You have to be able to tolerate the uncomfortable conversations, the uncomfortable feelings, the uncomfortable places you have to go to to create and then maintain emotional intimacy and to have that connection. It doesn't just happen automatically or we just think, oh, think of just the good things. Don't think about the bad. Uh, Let's not have that conversation. Life is short. Let's just enjoy our time together. There can be meaning to that at some times, but oftentimes we're just ignoring and avoiding things. If your leg is hurting, you don't say, oh, don't go to the doctor, just enjoy life and life is short. Well, you're worried, what if life gets shorter because of whatever I'm feeling if I don't see a doctor? So you go face that discomfort of going through tests, whatever it is, going through the appointment and then possibly some kind of procedure or treatment, whatever it is to help heal. And so when you look at relationships, the same things happen. And so for me, one of the pillars of mental health is our ability to tolerate negative feelings, what is often referred to as frustration tolerance or distress tolerance. And this is something that can be puzzling or even seems paradoxical because when we think of mental health or when you think of um, feeling good or psychologically being in a good place, we think of happiness and feelings of joy and feeling content, which are also part of it. But to genuinely experience those things and to create those types of positive experiences, we have to be willing to tolerate the negative feelings. We have to be willing to sit with the discomfort because if we don't, we'll ignore the information they give us and we're likely to turn to unhealthy ways of making them disappear. Drugs, alcohol, other compulsive behaviors that will quickly distract us, numb us, or make us focus on something else in some way or feel something else that makes us not feel those feelings, but those behaviors come with their own consequences as well. So I think that was something that I experienced while reading this book that it reminded me of this way of thinking of looking at everything as equal in some way or trying to look at it as equal or really the way I see it is trying to get rid of the bad feeling or any bad interpretation and just making everything somehow good. I think there's value in that at times to be aware of how we can put a negative spin on things, how we might even want to stay in the negative for reasons that serve us. But I appreciate more the stance of curiosity of understanding the feeling rather than what sometimes I see as trying to make the feeling disappear, evaporate, or not seem real, which I don't think has value. All right, that brings us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the book I talked about today, The Art of Possibility by Rosamund Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander, um, I mentioned there's one chapter called Being the Board that um, was rather than looking at yourself, let's say, as a piece on the chessboard, imagine you're the whole board. Not that you necessarily take responsibility or you're to blame for everything that happens, but that you actually are more empowered when you recognize your ability to be involved in in more than you recognize. And it reminds me also when I've talked about, I talked about contribution that they use, but another way of looking at contribution, I forget the, the three authors of the book, Difficult Conversations, a book I really enjoyed. I felt that it was very practical advice for uh, facilitating those difficult conversations in life. I was just talking about how any relationship to maintain the, the emotional intimacy and to create a 
healthy relationship, happy relationship, and to maintain a healthy and happy relationship, you need to have those difficult and uncomfortable contributions. And one of the themes in that book that really stuck out to me was that recognizing that when we are in a situation, or when, you know, let's say you're, if you're a moderator and trying to help two people or a mediator, trying to help two people or two groups um, who are in a situation, rather than going into blame, and also the Xanders talked about in this book about blame not being a helpful position or a place to go to, rather than focusing on blame, who's right, who's wrong, which is very much our adversarial judicial system and the ways we tend in general, just human judgment too, to look at things of who's right, who's wrong, who's more at fault, who's good, who's bad, that these ways of thinking are not productive and don't end with good results in general. You get a winner and a loser, which can work in certain settings, usually even in those, it's not going to be the best way to do things. But in most aspects of life, especially with a relationship, an ongoing relationship, a close relationship, when we go into the mindset of who's right, who's wrong, who's more right or wrong, who's good or bad, we're not going to end with a good result. Because when you have that winner and loser, you also are creating, when you put them on the podium, you create a space between those two people. So partners have a fight, husband or wife wins, the other person is away from them. They're not together. They're not standing on some podium together celebrating. They are separate. And so because of that, it creates a, a space that isn't going to end in a better result for them all. I do sometimes joke that with couples, especially the first session, but often throughout couples therapy, the feeling can be, I'm going to prove to you that my husband or my wife is bad and that I'm the good one or all the things they did wrong. And here's my evidence. And so I joke that I should sometimes wear a robe like a judge rather than whatever I'm wearing for the session because they're looking at me in some way to give them a verdict of who's good and bad, who's the better partner, who's the bad one. So rather than that, in that book, Difficult Conversations, several minutes ago that I mentioned, they talked about contribution and looking at how both people, both parties have contributed to whatever the current state of affairs happens to be. And I do uh, think it's important not to not imply that that means everything is exactly 50-50, that both parties have contributed equally to whatever the problem is, because that's not, that's not going to be the case all the time. And that's a simplistic way of looking at things. But again, if we get so focused on the 50-50, 60-40, we're getting back into that who's more to blame. But I say that so people recognize it doesn't mean that even if you look at your contribution, that means you have to say what you did was equal to them, even in your own mind, that you're just trying to look at what was my contribution to this. Because even in a situation where you might feel like you did nothing wrong, you might realize that your inaction has contributed to the state of affairs. So let's give an example. Someone keeps doing something you don't like. They show up late regularly when you see each other, let's say. And let's even say you mentioned it once. It's not like you never said anything. But after that one time, you don't say anything. You know, they keep showing up late. And um, you maybe do some passive aggressive things or you show some type of frustration, but nothing too clear after that first time. And so if we look at how things are going, it might seem pretty obvious. Well, look, this person is the wrong one. They keep coming late. 
that's already wrong to begin with. I told them once and that's on them. How am I in any way responsible? How would I have any contribution to this problem? But you might recognize I could have been more clear about how much this was bothering me or upsetting me. I could have confronted them earlier than I did, more explicitly, more clearly than I did. And so your resentment, it's not that it's your fault, but you have an awareness that all that built up resentment you've had from all of these interactions, you have contributed in some level by not expressing things to that person. Um, actually, in the book, she talked about with, with her sister, Rosamund was going to see her sister and talked about how she would have these uh, arguments in her car, driving there in general, where she was talking you know, things out, making all her points and how right she was. And we've all likely found ourselves in these situations where we're upset about something, we're angry about something, we feel wronged by someone, we feel like things haven't been fair in some way. And we play out these arguments in our head where we lay out, well, this is why, and did you know this? And sometimes we might even think what they might say and how we would, you know, give our rebuttal. And of course, in that argument in our head, we're always winning and we're righteous and we are the right ones and we feel good about how it goes. But what people often experience is that they have this same argument 100 times in their head, but zero times out loud with the person. So a hundred times we'll go through this whole process of, I, you know, I'll say this and yes, look, I'm right. See, how could you do this? And well, did it remember I told you that? So no, you can't say that because I even told you this this time and da 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 whatever the, the thing is. And we, we win. And of course, part of why we likely do this is one, we do rehearse our feelings and rehearse things. And that can be good, but maybe one time, maybe two times. But if we keep doing it, it's likely because, of course, the argument is so much more comfortable in our head and to have it out loud, to have the actual conversation. So in my head, I obviously can't get hurt or can't uh, face their reactions, which maybe I'm scared of. Also in my head, I always win because I can make the arguments and I make their arguments. And of course, I'm going to make my arguments better. And so it's a very nice feeling to win. Maybe we're afraid that if we actually have the discussion and the argument with the person, they'll bring something to our attention that makes us see we're not as right. Maybe we're not right at all, or we're maybe not as right as we think, or as righteous as we think. Maybe we've been wrong in some way, or maybe we're looking at it in a way that's biased from our perspective. Of course we are, but in a way that actually changes the, the reality of what we are experiencing. And so it's a lot more comfortable to have that in our head. And we all at some level are conflict avoidant, some of us much more than others. And so we prefer that. So what I would encourage all of us to do is to not have the conversation 100 times in your head, but rather have it one time out loud in reality with the person and face the discomfort of having the conversation. And very importantly, the discomfort of not knowing how it's going to go in our head. It's a fantasy that we control all aspects of. So we know it's going to end a way that we feel good about. Yes, that I'm right. And they apologize or they feel stupid or they see how wrong they are and how right I am. And we leave triumphant. But in reality, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's a lot more scary. But in reality and out loud and with the person, we actually can have a result. Something can happen. So if you've had an argument a hundred times in your head and not out loud with the person, you have to accept some responsibility for the resentment that's built up over this time that you've had those arguments, likely things have been going on repeatedly, that that resentment is partially your 
contribution to yourself and to this situation with you and the other person. So if you say, well, I resent this person so much, it's their fault. They kept showing up late. They did contribute in that way by continuing to show up late, but you contributed by not necessarily sharing with them what you were feeling and letting that resentment build up. So I appreciate this mindset of conflict, of difficult conversations, but also of conflict resolution to be aware and mindful of what's my contribution here, to let go of the thinking of blame and looking at who's more blameworthy, who was the more good one, the more right one, and who's the more wrong one and the more guilty one, and trying to focus on the mindset of who, how do we both con- contribute to getting here, and then how can we both contribute to getting out of here? If we both got ourselves in here and realized we both did that, well, we're both going to have to be responsible to get ourselves out. But oftentimes we think, well, no, it's all your fault. You're going to fix it, and then everything's going to be okay. And rarely are situations that way. And actually, that reminds me of another chapter in the book that they had, which was telling the we story. It's actually the last chapter before the coda at the end of the book. But telling the we story, and they capitalize the W and the E, and we is having that mindset of of we rather than focusing on ourselves and or even some group. How do we think about things that we think of everyone who's involved and what they want, what they think, and what they value rather than one person or just some people or one group? How do we keep everyone involved? And and I really appreciate this mindset because I think it's so often lost in the ways that we have arguments. Because as soon as we get upset, if we feel wronged by someone and we get angry, it brings out in us this adversarial mindset. I've been wronged to make it right. I have to either fight back against the person that hurt me. I have to hurt them the same way that they hurt me to get some kind of revenge or retribution. But somehow I have now have I now have an enemy. So anger and that feeling of being wronged makes us think we have to make it right through anger, through hurt. It does take some thinking and reflection to be aware of our anger and to process it. Doesn't mean we ignore it. Doesn't mean we say, oh, I don't need to be mad. They've been nice other times or I should be grateful for the good things they've done. You don't have to do that. You can recognize the anger. But it doesn't mean you're going to act purely from the angry place that means I have to hurt back or I have to make things right in some aggressive way. I can share my anger or I can express that in a way that lets the person know I value them. I still think they're good. I still love you, but I want you to know what upset me. And it's actually because I love you and our relationship that I want to share this with you because I don't want that resentment to build up. And if I don't tell you, the resentment will build up. Something is going to get in between us or it already has. And that thing is only going to grow and push us further apart. And I don't want that. And so this is how I encourage couples to be aware if they, some people bring up stuff possibly too often without processing it or thinking about it. They might just react and say things to their partner when they're upset. That could be problematic. But many people go to the other extreme where they think they should never bring something up. They're so conflict avoidant, so afraid that conflict will lead to the end of the relationship or they won't be loved or they will be seen as a nuisance or a burden that unfortunately they don't bring things up at all. And so I encourage them to look at it as not a way of nagging or trying to hurt their partner, but rather it's because they love their partner and they don't want there to be resentment. They want to resolve the issues and not let them build up. So it can be very helpful to think about 
in any disagreement, conflict that you have, well, what is my contribution? How did I do things or not do things in this case to get us here? Maybe I didn't say things when I should have or made them clear enough. And that's my responsibility. That's my contribution to how this conflict has been created. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.